0: Hello and welcome to Confessions of a Wee Timorous Bushi. This is your host, Menion, also known as Rob. So, a uh, beautiful day, sunny morning here in Japan. And this time I would like to bring you uh, some ideas I've had about um, Celtic mythology and legend and its uh, influence, however small, on advanced dungeons and dragons. In this episode, I'd like to revisit the Celts and how they are used in Dungeons & Dragons with a particular focus on the first edition advanced Dungeons & Dragons or AD&D. One of my first exposures to Celtic legend was in fact via AD&D, the Legends and Lore book to be precise. That was the book that I would read with my friend in the elementary school playground. I was 10 and didn't know who the Celts were let alone realise that both my friend and I had Celtic surnames mine Gaelic and his Cornish. To be honest, we were more interested in the Greek and Norse myths. Later, once I started playing AD&D at secondary school, I would discover that the game also included two very Celtic character classes, the Bard and the Druid. Now that might seem odd to many people today, since in most role-playing games, since first edition AD&D, those classes have become synonymous with fantasy minstrels and shamanic priests. But the bard and druid of the first edition were quintessentially Celtic. Whether it was the names of the bardic colleges, which were taken from the actual ones of early Irish history, or the druid spell Shilele, there was no attempt to describe a more generic fantasy class. And if that's not proof enough for you, look no further than the names. Both class names are Celtic words that have not only spread into English and other languages, but are still used to this day in the Celtic languages. First published for AD&D as Deities and Demigods, Legends and Lore includes a Celtic mythology section that features several deities and heroes from the Irish and Welsh legends, drawing particularly from the early Irish cycles as well as the Welsh Mabinogi. In later years, I would fall in love with these stories, the early Irish cycles for their truly alien taste of Bronze Age barbarity and the Mabinogian for its tender humanity. Returning to Legends and Lore, One of the most enduring tropes introduced through this book into the fantasy genre is that of the wild hunt. While there are variations of the wild hunt across insular and mainland Europe, the one described in Legends and Lore is that of the Celts. Another less well-known feature of Celtic mythology introduced by Legends and Lore is the Tathlum or Tathlum. It translates as brain ball. And this is from Ireland. It's a slingshot made from a mixture of lime and the brains of a blood relative of your enemy. A warrior struck by such a brain ball would be sorely injured. In game terms, a blood relative by uh, hit by such a shot loses half of their hit, total hit points. Two notable spells in D&D are given Gaelic names, Shileli and Gess or Gas. The spell Shileli from the Irish Siler, or thonged willow stick in English, allows the druid caster to fashion a magical club. Although I'm unaware of any references to such a weapon in ancient Irish history or legend, it was used for stick fighting in the eighteenth and nineteenth centuries in Ireland, and certainly has a lot of flavour. Then there's the gas spell, which deviates from uh, Celtic legend entirely because in D&D the spell lays a compulsion on someone to complete a certain task. In contrast, the gas of Irish legend is an, an innate doom of some kind, a good or bad prophecy and or taboo relating to it that prohibits someone from certain acts on pain of dishonour or death. for the moment, D&D has drawn on Celtic legend for a number of creatures. Two of these that are closely associated with the ancient Irish cycles are the Firbog and the Fomorians. The Firbog, which may be better known by 5th edition D&D and Critical Role aficionados as the Cow People, are one of the original tribes that inhabited Ireland before the gods and fairy ancestors of the Celts arrived. In ad the Firbolg were non-evil giants. The name Firbolg literally means bag people, but the significance of this is now lost. Yes, British and Irish listeners, since ancient times the Gaelic word for bag has been bog spelt B-O-L-G and at least in Scotland is pronounced bollock. Draw your own conclusions. Now The Fomorians on the other hand were the sea demons that invaded Ireland but were finally defeated by the mythic ancestors of the Irish. In ad they are portrayed as malevolent and deformed giants which is quite close to how they are described in the early, early Irish cycles. Other fantastic creatures of Celtic legend that spring to mind, at least to my mind, are the Kushi and the Banshee. In AD&D, the Kushi, literally fairy dog, were hounds used by the wild elves and wood elves. The better known Banshee, literally fairy woman of AD&D, closely resembles that of legend, a woman who can bring death. According to Irish legend, the Banshee has a deadly keening scream. Incidentally, keening is a loan word from Gaelic. Among the Scottish girls, she is known as the Ben Nige and is said to be found uh, by unlucky ones washing blood from clothes. Seeing her is a bad omen that inevitably brings death to the viewer or loved ones. Okay. So, you want to know about the Leprechauns? Well, the AD&D Leprechaun closely conforms to that of Irish folklore, but it's interesting to note that the Leprechaun does not appear in Irish tales until the Middle Ages. Finally, a close perusal of Monster Manuals 1 and 2 and the Fiend Folio further reveals the Afanq of Welsh. Uh, folklore, the Cored of Breton folklore, and the Spriggan of Cornish folklore. There's also um, a plethora of other creatures of possible or mixed Celtic origin, including the Bogart, the Bogle, the Bohound, the Bubri, the Peck or Pech, the Selki um, and the Merrow, which are the aquatic ogres of AD&D, and also the Kelpie. As previously mentioned in my episode on celtic studies and the Godothin poems the druids were the philosopher priests of the ancient celts of europe and up until the defeat of the gauls and the britons by the romans the druids alone had the power to establish kings and unite the fiercely independent tribes one of the main criticisms that julius caesar had against the druids in his history and propaganda piece the conquest of gaul was that the Druids practiced human sacrifice. Perhaps we should say still practiced since the Romans had themselves only stopped sacrificing people to their gods some 32 years earlier in 81 BC. Caesar describes how the Druids would hang large numbers of people, usually criminals, from the branches of trees in forests or would fill large human effigies the famous wicker man with them, and burn them. And this almost certainly did happen. The ancient Celts were also recorded by the Greek and Roman scholars to have been headhunters. And this is largely corroborated by the archeological finds and by the early Irish cycles. But it's also uh, worth bearing in mind that this drive to civilize the barbarians also provided moral justification for the Roman Republic to extend its borders and annex the lands beyond the Alps. If you've not read The Conquest of Gaul, I highly recommend it. The international politics it describes feel chillingly modern. Returning to the historical Druids, contrary to popular belief Stonehenge was not a Druidic site, rather the spiritual heart of Celtic culture lay on the Isle of Anglesey in North Wales and pilgrims and acolytes would flock there from all around Europe. Remember, the the various Celtic tribes scattered across Western and Central Europe and Galatia in the Middle East lacked centralised government, but this suggests a highly structural, cultural and religious unity. While the Romans largely ignored Stonehenge. Records indicate they pushed down one of the stones. They targeted Anglesey and by 77 AD had put everyone there to the sword, and it is believed that the aim of this was to end the political threat posed by the Druids in Britain. Although this spelled the end of organised Druidism in Britain, the Druid- Druidic orders seem to have survived in Ireland and would later fuse. With a new religion brought by the Roman missionaries, most notably by St. Patrick, to form Celtic Christianity in the early 5th century. Page 21 of the AD&D Player's Handbook has the following to say of the thematic origins of the Druid. Druids can be visualised as medieval cousins of what the ancient Celtic sect of Druids would have become had it survived the Roman conquest. So, while Gary Gygax is not claiming to have based the Druid class on the historical Celts, which would be difficult really because we know so very little about them, he is saying that they constitute one part of the ingredient he has used uh, in creating the what-if fantasy concept of his game, and specifically his Greyhawk setting. The Bard appears to be one of the least liked character classes in first edition AD&D, although I'm rather fond of it. Instead of the magical minstrels of later editions, the Bard is a lore master who must train first as a fighter, then as a thief, before undergoing druidic training and entering a Bardic college. Most of the Bardic colleges are taken from actual Irish history, although bards were common across the celtic world. The only detailed historical records we have of bards come from irish and to a lesser extent scottish sources, not welsh as best of dragon magazine would have us believe. The following schools use the original gaelic or anglicized gaelic names and although they are derived from the old irish for my own convenience I'll pronounce them as if they were modern Scottish Gaelic. Fochluikon, Machfurmi, Dos, Kani, Klee, Anstru, Olav, and Magna Alumnai. The names used in the book probably aren't all spelt correctly either, but they seem to be the conventional ones that have come down into English language records and academia. You've probably noticed that the last one isn't Irish but Latin. But to my knowledge, Olav or Olau would have been the highest degree, and would have been the equivalent of a doctor. Bear in mind that Ireland wasn't affected by the Dark Age, uh, sorry, the Dark Ages that followed the burning of the Great Library, and that the Druidic order seems to have blended into the early Irish Christianity. There is said to have been a university of these holy men, bards and um, lawyers, I guess, that numbered some 10,000 people. And by the medieval period, when they were being partially colonised by the Scandinavians and the Anglo-Normans, Old Irish would boast the greatest body of literature in Western Europe bar Latin. One of the jobs of the bard was to spread news and information, and another was to sing the praises of, or lampoon, to use the Irish word again, the great, whichever they deserved, uh, according to their actions. Now the bards would travel the Gaelic-speaking world, then most of Ireland, the Isle of Man, and much of Scotland, until the various religious succession uh, wars and uh, English and uh, later the British government laws restricting banning the language, music and culture associated with the Gales. Uh, Interestingly, the Bards and the Celtic clan system survived in Scotland the longest, um, disappearing only after the Jacobite rebellions of the early to mid-1700s. So, in my estimation, the Bard of early D&D is a warrior poet, a satirist, a scholar, and more. I understand that they are a difficult class to run in a normal AD&D campaign, but they'd fit right into one that drew on Celtic legend. As I've said before, it's been a long time since I studied all this, so there are doubtless errors in what I've said. I would like to tell you of how the training of bards and druids would be conducted in dark rooms, how a heavy stone would be placed on their chests to help them focus on learning their lore, and how this training would take up to 20 years for the druids. But that would require more research to locate the academic sources of my memories, so I'll leave it here. There are a wealth of books on the Celts and one of my favourites is Nora Chadwick's The Celts. But much is lost in the mists of time, which is probably what draws people and their imaginations to them in the first place. As any Runequest Glorantha fan will tell you, there's something arresting about ancient times when events were only partially recorded, if recorded at all. A frontier of the imagination, if you will. Just like the unwritten future, the uncertain past seems to beckon us, daring us to imagine what life would have been like in the ancient world. Typically this distant past is often considered to be a world of absolute barbarity and chaos, but certainly for family units and society to survive and flourish. There must have been more to these people than brute force. Whether we are looking at the ancient Celts of Europe, the Aztecs of Central America, or the Aborigine people of Australia, our common humanity binds us. Even if we prefer not to draw directly on real-life analogues for use in our fantasy games, the cultural and historical heritage of our planet is an inexhaustible, Source of inspiration. Listening back to the episode, it all seems a little bit uh, dry and academic, and it really needs input from you, uh, the listener, to bring it to life in the form of discussion. Some things I didn't touch on were women during Celtic times, particularly uh, druidesses. Uh, They weren't all just holy men, as I Uh, accidentally said. Um, Also queens and slaves. Um, Another point that I didn't touch upon was the continuation of Celtic practices in Anglophone Britain and possible connections with witchcraft. Um, Also I did not look at how cultures fused together to form new, new cultures. So Um, drop us a message here on anchor or if you can't do that please contact me on a on twitter it's probably the easiest way to get me um on twitter my address is um old at old shabby gamer one word old shabby gamer and I usually go by the name of Menion, also known as Rob, using the same uh, little M rune uh, that I usually do. So I look forward to hearing from you, hopefully, and please take care and uh, enjoy your lives. Until next time, goodbye.